this Pro Video Coalition podcast, I'm talking with Philip Grossman about some of his adventure filmmaking travels and how he packs his gear and what gear he takes, and he tells some fantastic stories about traveling to some of the most exclusive places in the world to shoot stills and video. This turned into a really long chat, and we broke this into two separate podcasts. So this first one's about 45 minutes, and then we'll follow up with a part two later that's also about 45 minutes. Enjoy. Welcome to another Pro Video Coalition podcast. This time it's just myself and Mr. Philip Grossman sitting down to chat. I wanted to talk to him a little bit about his sort of travel filmmaking lifestyle because I'm always amazed how folks like him are able to pack everything up, travel the world, capture beautiful images, and get back all in one piece without losing their uh, their red cameras and whatnot. So welcome back, Philip. Thanks for joining me again. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. appreciate it. Yeah, you and myself and Gary Adcock sat down a few weeks ago and talked about HDR and high dynamic range. We mentioned in the other podcast, and we can real quickly mention it here, I don't want to say you're famous for traveling to Chernobyl, but you are kind of famous for your travels to Chernobyl first and <laughs> foremost. Yeah. And uh, and, I don't, and you were doing this long before the HBO series came out, but you you actually helped them on the series in some respect, did you not? Correct. Correct. It all started uh, a little over 11 years ago now, or close to 11 years ago. My, my wife says that I had a midlife crisis. Of course, she was a girlfriend at the time, now wife. said I had a midlife crisis, and instead of you know getting a Corvette or you know some other sports car, I went to Chernobyl. So it was, you know, I was doing corporate America. You know, I'd stepped away from the media space for several years. It was actually, you know, I've always been a technologist. I'm a, you know, a, a dual degreed engineer and, you know, specialized in, in various engineering and, and high tech stuff. And I had a, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a boss, Bill Pierre was his name, who was just one of those few people I've ever had in my life I consider a mentor that I've really just I've always tried to learn from people but there are certain people that I've just learned immense amount of things from and more about life in general than specific to the job and and, and Bill and I worked together for about seven years and Bill decided you know he'd been doing this five-year plan he was going to go off and sail around the world with his uh, wife and kids and he left and I was sort of lost I think at work I'm like do I really want to be doing this? What do I really want to do? And, you know, Elizabeth Hansen, who's now my wife, said, why don't you take some time off from work? Focus on your photography. I've been doing – I started photography when I was 13. Okay. Uh, my uncle gave me a camera, and I did, you know, through college. And then, you know, like every typical photographer, you know, eventually becomes professional. I did the wedding route for a long time, so I did weddings and, you know, really honed my skills and did a lot of fine art stuff. And my wife said, why, why don't you focus on that? And, you know, and sort of on the aside or side, I've been doing sort of – cinematography, documentary type stuff, you know, been a technology, so every new technology that came out, I wanted to try. And my, my father film, did eight millimeter home movies. My great grandfather even did eight millimeter home movies. So I've always had, you know, my hand in the media space. And I just said, my wife said, why don't you take some time off and, you know, focus on your photography. And I said, okay. So, you know, put my engineer hat on and said, why is Timothy Greenfield not as famous as Annie Leibovitz? Both amazing portrait photographers. It's just that, you know, uh, Annie has done amazing portraits of amazing people and the first to do some of those. So I started thinking, where could I go? What could I shoot? You know, I'm like, go to Europe. People have done that. Himalayas, Eiffel Tower. And everything sort of combined. So I started studying nuclear engineering in college. That was my first major before I switched to civil. I grew up near Three Mile Island. I you know, oh, wow. distinctly remember that accident happening when I was in Mrs. Murray's third grade. 
my family's last place point of of emigration to the United States was in a in a town of Ruzhin in Ukraine, and it just happened to be the 25th anniversary of Chernobyl. So all those things sort of aligned, and I said I'm going to go to Chernobyl. And so, you know, then I started doing research on how to get there. There were no public tours. They had just switched to visa fee free travel to Ukraine from the United States, so I didn't have to worry about visas. And I jokingly say I met some dude on the internet. And I did. I just reached out to a guy who I found in, you know, in Googling. This is back in 2010, who had been there a couple times. And, you know, he says he, he's going to go back and he can take some professional photographers with him. And I sent him some of my stuff. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're professional. I've got a space in November. If you want to go? I said, sure. He goes, wire me $500. This wasn't like a, uh, like a tourist outfit, was it? Or was this just no. like one guy? One guy. It? Okay. So they, they in 2009, they had a short time where they were allowing some tours to go in to, to Chernobyl, private tour operators. And, and Arik is his name, had gone on one or two of those and, and now became friends with – you have to have a military minder with you. Became friends with a military minder and now or, you know went directly with the military minder and organized access via the management and the minder. And I just happened to meet Eric at that point in time and, uh, you know, the $500 and of course it wasn't going to Western Union. It was going to a bank. So I didn't feel as, <laughs> as uh, worried. And uh, I said, great. I, you know, had no idea what to expect and packed up my stuff, my cameras and video cameras and started heading to the airport and, and Eric texted me. And said, hey, I think we're going to be able to get access to reactor control room number four, which is where the accident ha happened. Hmm. Um, he says, but it, it's, you know, it's going to be like two thousand dollars, you know, because everything oh. at that time was was bribes or location fees is technically what you have to call it when you're doing television. Right. Um, and then, you know, so I swung to the bank and picked up some extra cash. And then he also said, oh, we might uh, uh, be able to do a helicopter flight as well, which is a rarity. And that would be a little more money. So I went, you know, so I'm carrying all this cash on me and um, going so, to. So you've got some real trust in an individual you don't yeah. know. Yep. I, you know, and I have a my, my background. I spent a little time in the military, very short time. I did ROTC. You know, I've always been sort of a survivalist. So I, you know. I, I don't go at it with, oh, my God, let's just go. And, you know, I, I, I take precautions and I think through things. And you can never be 100 percent safe. But, it, you know, you, you plan your stuff as right. best you can. And, you know, there's that risk reward. That sometimes the greater the risk, the better the reward. Yep. And so I, I did this first trip and it was amazing. And I was so unprepared and what I needed to take with me from a camera technology perspective. And but I still I think I shot. 10,000 images in four days. Canon 5D Mark II was the, the first digital camera I took there. Aww, what a sweet camera that was. I know, I know. And I had a little Panasonic TM700 HD Handycam, you know, just so I could capture some video and and uh, went and had an amazing time. And, you know, we did get into the control room and, and you know, all those things. I'm like, wow, once in a lifetime opportunity. Got back to the States and uh, I got a note from Arik about three months later. He goes, hey, I'm going back. Do you want to go? I said, yes, but only if you go longer. First time was four days. Then was uh, eight days that, you know, I think it was seven months later. I went, it was eight days. And on the third, by the third trip, again, girlfriend, now wife, Elizabeth, like I'm going. <laughs> so, so she went with me. And it was on that trip where we said, you know, there's something here story-wise. And, and from, a, you know, I do documentaries and they're all personal or based you know, personal things I'm interested in. And I, every documentary, no matter what, is going to have a bias. Human beings are naturally sure. have that way. And most people go, I want to do a documentary on X with a perspective. And that's how they attack the problem. 
in the project. But then nothing wrong with that. That's just how humans work. I tried to do a little different. I was sort of like, okay, for the next four or five trips, I'm just going to start capturing material that I see there, sort of documenting what had happened or transpired, you know, over this five-year period from the 25th anniversary with the goal being the, the 30th anniversary. And it was during that period of time that, you know, collected the materials. And it was sort of that, let the story tell me what it needs to be. And that's what sort of came from it. And I think it was my 10th visit or so. And sort of met, you know, it's the typical when you don't know really how TV shows are produced, you know, that the process, you meet people who say they're producers and, you know, met some guy who was full of crap and, you know, he dragged his feet and we were trying to get something put together and he knew this person, knew that person. And it just happened to be during that period of time as I was getting out of the contract that we had signed and I made a contract that had a, you know, a lifespan that if certain things weren't hit during that lifespan that I could cancel the contract mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. And he just wasn't fulfilling. And it was during that time I met some guy who just reached out to me. I think it was on Facebook who worked – he used to work for High Noon, you know, the Cake Boss and all that kind of stuff. He goes, love your stuff, the things you're posting. And, of course, over this period of time I was the first person to fly a UAV there. So I was posting stuff in DJI, you know, saw that. And the, the guys at DJI actually – it took them a week and a half to believe that the photos were real when oh, I first wow. saw them. <laughs> And then that turned into them doing a DJI story, which is, you know, a story about me doing a documentary or documentary about me doing a documentary in Chernobyl. And the person from High Noon reached out and said, oh, I love this stuff. I can introduce you to some people, you know, and if not, no problem at all. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I took him up on his offer. And, you know, 18 months later, I was hosting and producing a TV show for Discovery Science Channel, you know, that played all around the world right around, right at the 30th anniversary. Never, you know, intended necessarily to be in front of the camera, but I managed to be in front of the camera. And it was a great learning experience through that process. And, of course, this is now all extended into really sort of, I call it adventure cinematography just because I, the, the adventure is the real goal. The cinematography happens to be secondary because these are personal projects. Mm -hmm. I wind up just licensing, licensing the material, although I do have working on hopefully a a show that we're pitching about the Cold War era stuff to some networks that may get picked up. Well, you never know. If you're going on an adventure, then capturing what you're seeing in the adventure seems like, you know, a no, a no brainer, yep. no matter what crazy adventure it is. Exactly. Exactly. Just to document it. And I, you know, I have 270 terabytes of storage at home now. Because That's a lot. This. Yeah. But I'm a, you know, you know, that adage, if it doesn't exist in three places, it doesn't exist at all. So yep. you know, two of the places are here in the house and then I'll rotate out hard drives up to my sister who lives about 20 miles from here. So there's some stuff out of the house. Although I have a, a safe now that's fireproof for three hours. So I don't, I get lazy sometimes and stick it in there and go, oh, I'll take it up to my sister's eventually. But yeah, and that was, and then, and then being an engineer is where I sort of spent the next, you know, the, the last 10 years or so in doing all these things from, you know, Chernobyl to Kazakhstan to, to see the um, abandoned Soviet space shuttles to Uzbekistan trying to locate Aralisk 7 or what's known as Anthrax Island, trying to figure out what's the best way, what's the best equipment to take, how do I lighten the load, which never seemed to happen. I always seem to carry more and more gear because you're trying to capture everything. You know, just as a photographer, it's the camera and a couple lenses and you're good. You know, as a cinematographer, it's the camera. You know, the still camera, the motion camera, mm -hmm. the GoPro camera, the, the tripod, the slider, you know, the gimbal, you know, you try and do all the, the drone, all these things. And so I really have spent, you know, the last 10 years sort of honing that process uh, to figure out, you know, what is that sort of how I got involved with with red digital cinema was that uh, 
I was at IBC. My day job was, you know, at the time was with, I think at that time I was with the Weather Channel and was with Imagine Communication. So I was on the technology side of, of production and went to, to IBC and, you know, I'm like, first back up a little bit, about four or five years earlier, I shot Cinema DNG Raw. Um, with an Odyssey 7Q recorder on one of the trips and came back 4K. It was some of the first 4K ever shot there. What, what was that connected to? To a Sony, what was the, the 700? Okay. And and then eventually it, I switched over to the FS7. There was FS700 and an Odyssey 7Q. And I came back with like 20 terabytes of material. I'm like, I'm never shooting raw again. That's <laughs> You know, and that was when I think four terabyte drives were the biggest that you could get. And so I'm like, yes, there's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And then management of it was horrible. And then, you know, fast forward five years or so. And I was like, I hear a lot about this red camera and, you know, I just don't understand it. You have the weapon and the Epic and all, I just, I don't understand. So I went to, I made an appointment and it's funny. I'm like, they had just come out with a Raven. I'm like, I'm going to get the Raven. I'm going to start there. And on my way to the red booth, I ran into some friends that work at other companies and said, I'm going to go talk to Red about the Raven. They're like, oh, no, no, get the Scarlet. Got to get the Scarlet. It's only a couple thousand more. You'll be happy. So I got to the booth and I met with Mike Greaves, I believe is his name. He was the EMEA sales head for, for Red and sort of explained all the various things, you know, the camera and the weapon and what it meant and the sensors. And he said, hey, look, in two weeks, we're going to announce this new 8K camera. And if you, you know, put your thousand dollars down on the Scarlet, you're considered part of the Red family. So you'll get the discount on the 8K and the 8K, for those who don't know, is a 35 megapixel still. I'm like, one camera does mm-hmm. go still in motion, yep, yep. You know, the, the, the holy grail, because 4K is only about 8.2, which oddly enough was about what the five or my 10D, 20D was <laughs> when I started. And so I'm like, great. So I put the money down, got the camera and then... I, I did this on purpose. I, other than just turning the camera on once, I did not do anything with the camera until I got to Chernobyl. The idea was I wanted to write a, this blog, you know, Confessions of a Red Newbie, and just, you know, learning as I'm going. Of course, people are like, yeah, that's nuts. You're going to Chernobyl. I'm like, yeah, but this is like my 11th visit, I think, or 10th visit. I sort of knew what was going on at the point in time and knew what I wanted to capture some things in 8K. And, and that's tricky with Red because it has a, you know, it has a reputation possibly of going wrong. Yep. Especially yep. early on in the, or some of the early production models of different yep. different models. And, and knock on wood, I have the DSMC2 and I upgraded eventually to the Helium to do 60p. I have, again, knock on wood, have not had an issue with that camera. Now, maybe I treat it a little bit, you know, uh, more genteel than people in regular production because it's my own and mm-hmm. the way I travel. But I, I must admit, exposure wasn't the issue. Focusing was. Oh, interesting. You yeah. have to focus. There's no autofocus. Uh, or there sort of is, but it was so rudimentary, it, it it effectively had no autofocus. And you have to be spot on with 8K. It's noticeable. And at that time, they had no focus peaking. Now, they did have some edge detect things I was unaware of or didn't know much about. So I'd, I'd say my first endeavor with that camera and then went on to Belarus after that to film in Belarus's zone. <laughs> my focus wasn't all that great well shooting 8k you're punching into 1080 on a lot of what you're ending up doing yep. so that focus is even more critical because yep. you're essentially zooming in so deep on the image yep and i would say it took me about a year to really feel comfortable with that camera from a production standpoint now it's you know it's one of my favorite cameras the dynamic range on it's amazing you know you can do the hdrx on it and get up to 22 stops you know, I was out in Rainbow Canyon, which is in Death Valley. I went out to shoot. It's an area where the Air Force and Navy does low-level 
training through the valleys. So what's really interesting is you're actually up on the hillside and the jets are below you in the valley. Oh, that's cool. You know, and they're within a couple hundred feet of you. And so I was there, you know, with the red filming and a couple old timers came up with their, I think they had one DXs. Oh yeah, this does, you know, 12 frames a second or 15 frames a second, <laughs> like 22 <laughs> megapixels. I'm like, this does 60 I can do 60. 35 <laughs> megapixels. So you've tw uh, twice here, you've talked about uh, meeting people and giving them money when they asked. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I think well you know i think funny thing is it's actually a uh, a good lesson for people out there especially on the the guy that you met going to chernobyl is it's kind of like cold calling you reached you kind of cold called him uh yeah. you know gauge conversations and personalities and use your intuition a little bit and then you know chose to put some risk out there same with buying an early red camera yep. uh, or you know maybe an early red camera but you know a new red camera to you yep. you put some 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 trust in your in other people and your own your own intuition to uh, to be able to make some of this some of this happen and that's not always the easiest thing for some people to do yeah and it was sort of you know i i don't know where that came from when i was a kid i hated roller coasters i hated things like that and as i got older i sort of just said and, and i think if i look back in my life i think that there was a a point where I had to deal with the death of a good friend who died of leukemia when I was like 13 years old. And I think it was sort of at that spot, at that young age, that I finally just went, Tuh. okay, you know, life's short, you know, let's just do what you can. And I think ever since then, I was, I had become less and less risk averse than through college, you know, and out of college. And, you know, so it was sort of the, if, in order, and then of course, Bill. I think Bill Peer helped a lot. My former boss, just saying, you've got to sort of take risks, and and things happen, and you deal with the way things happen. My wife hates the saying. I always say, you know, it is what it is. And Bill, I learned that from Bill. <laughs> he always say that, and you know, it's it's probably a term that's overused a little bit, but it it truly is that you just you can't control everything. Yeah, a lot of things that are out of your control. The only thing that's in your control is the reaction to the situations that happen. You know, there was a, a tell the story. I went to Chernobyl. Now, I'll preface it with this was three days after the Malaysian airliner was shot down in Ukraine, in, in eastern Ukraine. That'll so, that give you a pause. Yep. So, you know, I, I, I didn't, I told my mother I was going. I did not tell my father just because he, he's the one who would freak out, not my mom. And I told my mom, you know, if something happens, you can tell dad, you know. And, yeah. and so it went, you know, and I get off the airplane and, you know, there's this area they call sort of no man's land where, you know, glass doors open up. You go into this, I think it's 15 by 20 feet, you know, sort of like airlock chamber thing. And it's all blacked out and there's sliding glass doors on the opposite, you know, catacorner. And as I'm walking through, I've got a backpack with a tripod and rolling a pelican case and, and the uh, guy walks up to me and goes, Carne, Carne. And I, you know, I'm like, oh, Carne. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm an amateur. He goes, okay. And then he goes, you have helmet? Helmet? I'm like, mm, no. I did because I, I mount a light on it. But I'm like, nope, don't have a helmet. You have vest? Vest? And it dawned on me. He thought I was a reporter going east to Donetsk to film the fighting and they weren't going to allow anybody to do that. Uh, and I said, no, 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 no. I said, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I said, I told him, I'm going someplace safer. I'm going to Chernobyl. And he had this puzzled look on his face and he's okay. Like, oh. <laughs> you look like a professional though, yeah, carrying, yeah, exactly. carrying Pelican cases and whatnot. I know. And that's, that's sort of where I've started learning about how to 
go a little bit more incognito because after that trip, I'm like, oh, yeah, you really don't want to stand out. Yeah. So rarely do I take Pelican cases now if I, you know, unless I'm, you know, doing something professional and have the carnet. We go up to the to the reactor complex and, you know, I met my friend and we're up there shooting and we had we had gotten permission to go in. So part of this whole process and on all these kind of trips and the reason I do so many to the same place is because you build rapport with locals who feed you information and introduce you to other people who can help you get access to other people who can help you get more access. And so through all of this and, and a lot of help from my friend Arik, we've been able to get access to places most people had it in the past. Of course, now there's there's public tours and they actually can access most of the places um, that we've been able to access in the past. And so we're there. We got permit to go in at night or to be there at night. I'm up on top of uh, reactor number five, which was unfinished. I'm filming because I wanted to get the sun setting behind the main reactor complex. And, you know, I finish up and I t it's dark, so I've got my light on. I'm just wandering inside this, you know, empty giant structure, just, you know, tooling around, capturing some images, trying to figure things out. The engineer in me is going, is that the control room? No, is that where the water pumps went? And I exit the side of the building and all of a sudden there's flashlights and guns in my face and people oh, nice. yelling at me in Russian. Uh, and I knew, enough, you know, I've studied Russian, just not very good at it. But I knew enough to say, Yana Panamayo, Peruska, Ya Panamayo, Inglaska, Yo Panamayo, Inglaska, which basically means, I don't understand Russian. I understand English. Do you understand English? And they said, Da Nimnoga, which means yes, a little bit. And they put their, their guns down. And I held up my camera. I'm like, photographa, photographa. So it took me to the car. And the lieutenant was there, big smiling face, giant hat, in his 30s, you know, about my age, maybe a little younger. And uh, I, I said, I'm going to take my backpack off. Don't shoot me. And his <laughs> response was, please, please. That's the only English he knew was please. So they took us to the, to the, to the, so it turns out this is the FSB, which is sort of like their FBI, CIA, and they had snipers because there's still a lot of nuclear, and this is Ukrainian, not, not SBU, I should say, because Ukrainian, not, you know, there's still nuclear material in the complex. And so the sniper saw us and that's how they f discovered we were there. Ah. Um, went to the headquarters, you know, went, you know, made me go through all of my photos on my camera. And the thing is, so they, they, I was showing him, I said, you're just taking pictures on my phone. I'm going through my iPhone showing pictures. And I had to have a picture of the FS 700 with the Odyssey 7Q. And they're like, what's that? I'm like, oh, just, just for a picture, just for a picture. And so they go and get like the kernel or whatever it comes out. And my friend's like, we got to show him something. What are you going to do? So I pulled out the Odyssey and held up the GH4. Mm -hmm. it said, maybe it was, yeah, GH4. I said, this is what you saw. And they go, oh, okay. And so they didn't realize that the Odyssey was the, obviously a recorder. And uh, so they went with me and I had to go through all of my images on my GH4 and delete any pictures of the reactor complex, which I have hundreds or thousands at that point in time. But, you know, I said, I I'll just delete them all. And they go, no, no, just reactor. So we sat there for like an hour going through every image on that camera, deleting the ones they don't want me to keep. And then we had to sign some paperwork, went back to the, to the place we were staying and I just restored them all. <laughs> so, Oh my gosh. Well, I think that's a place where, you know, you, you know, the technology and you know what you have and you can sort yep. of circumvent the, their lack of knowledge, even though I'm sure they're trying to do a job and they have a reason yep. to, to do what they're doing. But yep. is there a worry that you may go back the next time, you know, and, and they'd be like, hey, you, you pulled a fast one on us. And I mean, there's always that concern and you, there's nothing you can really do about it. You just go back the next time and hopefully they don't remember and 
you know, you go about your merry way. And if they do remember, you, you know, you create another, you know, illusion of whatever's <laughs> going on. And, you know, you just do it that way. And it's, you know, you just, you, you never know. So, I mean, to give an example, that there, there's a certain amount of risk that I'm willing to take and a certain amount I'm not. So as an example, recently, you know, Ukraine with, with COVID going on had the borders closed, like most of Europe. And we had gotten permission to go to the fuel processing and fuel storage facility at Chernobyl, which nobody gets permission to. And so they opened their borders June 1, and they're getting everybody ready by June 15th to let people in. And they're, I was sort of confused around their uh, quarantine, 14-day quarantine model. So I reached out. Because of all this work, I've done a lot of stuff with the United Nations, and I've met diplomats and prime ministers. And so I knew people at the Ukrainian consulate, and so I called them to get you know, sort of information about what's the process. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, yeah, 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 you know, you come and you can, you know, do it at a hotel and you got to get this app and you check in with the app, you take a picture of your face. Of course, the app's all in Ukrainian. I'm like, I don't know how to use this. So I'm like, my iPad's photographing my iPhone screen to be able to translate the stuff with That's Google hilarious. Translate. That's very meta right there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I'm wa- walking through all this stuff and I'm like, <laughs> the weird thing is I mean, the the Marriott doesn't exist there. It was supposed to be built but never got finished, and that's where all my points are from my day job traveling. I'm like, I'll use my points for 14 days, and that's no problem. And they're like, well, could I do it in Warsaw? Because I know there's a Marriott property there. <laughs> they're like, yeah, you can do it in Warsaw, but there's a possibility in Poland that their numbers are going up, and they may have to. So you may be there 14 days, and then you may it, it may change, and then you'd have to isolate again. And that's what that's the risk I wasn't willing to take because I said, okay, if I'm in Ukraine for 14 days, and my friend Eric lives in Poland. I said, if all of a sudden something changes, and then he comes in, he may have to. So it could be 28 days. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Actually get to the reactor, <laughs> like that's just that's too. I can't stay 28 days in a hotel. I'm having a hard time spending 28 days in my house. Yeah. 28 days in a hotel, and uh, well, well, so, how's that for a uh, you know first world white male problem? It's like, oh, do I, I, my Marriott points won't translate here for my 14 day quarantine to my exactly, <laughs> to my photography exactly, photography exactly. trip. So, it's all personal, so I'm you know I'm footing the bill. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, the amount of money I've spent you know in traveling to Ukraine. I mean, the first time getting access to the reactor itself, no one got access, and this was 2014 when we first gained access. It was ten thousand dollars. Wow. When I did my television show three years later. I think it was only like 6000 but you couldn't pay it. You always sort of paid intermediaries. It's just the way things work in, in some countries. Mm-hmm. And in this case, because the guy who was in charge uh, was under investigation for corruption, we had to go to another small village where his, I don't know, it was his brother or cousin, some family member owned a hotel. And so the crew, there's like six of us, we had to get six rooms at $1,000 a night. And that's how they wound up getting their money for access. Wow. You know, but, you know, and that's just sort of from those experiences, I've just gotten to the point of it's a lot of hurry up and wait in different places. Mm -hmm. You know, I've gone to Kazakhstan twice now and have made access to the Soviet space shuttles, which are, it's a 26 mile hike one way, has to be done at night. Because technically, you're breaking into a Russian military base. Baikonur Cosmodrome, which is about 3,000 square miles, I believe, is leased by the Russians from Kazakhstan. So, is it literally hiking on foot? Yes, hiking on foot across the desert at night. So, is this are you are you illegally sneaking into there, or is it just you know it's so limited that your, the permission you have has to be very low key? No, technically we're sneaking in. We've, we've requested permission, you know, we, we, and it's one of the things we always ask for 
you know, permission to access these. Because for me, the idea is I want to, I'm documenting history. I'm a, you know, I'm an engineer by schooling, a huge mm-hmm. space nerd. Most people don't know that the Soviets even had a space shuttle program, let alone that it actually launched and did two orbits around the earth. And then during my um, filming of my TV show for Discovery, I got to meet Tom Reed, Thomas Reed, who was the secretary of the Air Force for Ford, but also was a special advisor for Reagan during the Cold War. And Tom told me some stories about this program called Line X, which is the Soviets, you know, basic Line X is sort of their KGB has different, they call them lines. We would, I guess, call them divisions. And Line X's goal was to go into the West and steal Western secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found out about it. Bob Casey was the head of the CIA. Instead of rounding up all the Russian spies, we decided to work with our companies in the U.S. to create fake information. So Texas Instruments, Martin Lathia Call, you name it, they were sort of involved in this. And we gave that back the fake information. And it's, you know, my supposition on sort of the show I'm doing now or working on in some of the documentaries that I believe it's this and Tom said that's actually why we won the Cold War, because by the time the Russians found out we had done that, they had no idea what was real and what was fake. Wow. And, you know, theoretically, we blew up part of the Trans-Siberian pipeline because they had stolen software that we had falsified, and it caused an issue when they went to go test it, the pipeline, and it blew up. And uh, so— It's a movie right there. Yeah, and so my my thought is I believe that's what happened because if you look at the their shuttle program— the shuttle is almost identical to ours. Now, the whole system is different. Their launch vehicle and shuttle vehicle are actually two separate vehicles, where in the U.S. it's it's one one system. So there are differences. But if you look at the, the physical launch or the shuttle vehicle, the orbital, it looks just like ours. Mm-hmm. And they did this one launch in 88, November of 88, and that's about when the Russians started finding out what we had done. And the next launch was not scheduled till 91 or 92, and I believe that the Russians found out. And, and as much as people go, oh, Russians are callous and, you know, the Soviets, blah, blah, they're still individuals. They're still human beings. They still have some level of concern for, you know, their citizens, the engineers in the space program. And they weren't going to launch something that they weren't sure of. At least that's my belief. And so that's what sort of goaded me to try and get there and see this thing. And it literally is 26 miles one way at night in the desert because you're sneaking into a, a facility that hasn't been accessed in 30 some odd years. Um, well, are, there, are there other people who had been sneaking in too? But I'm, your your photos were the first ones I ever, I, I mean, I think I remember reading somewhere years ago that there was a shuttle program in Russia, but that was by far the first images yeah, I'd ever seen. I think the first images that I saw came out, I think 2014 or 2015, a Russian, I think it was a Russian photographer had gotten there. And that's what sort of prompted me. I'm like, hmm, I want to go there. As far as I know, I'm the first American to get there, which is okay. funny because my Eric is my my travel and filming partner and friend, and you know, and we're chatting about it. Goes, remember, this is you know, this is Russian property. It's Russian military, and you're an American. Yeah, good luck <laughs> with that. <laughs> okay, so you know, so we made the, the the trip at night, and I had thermal scope with me, so I could you know look for you know the the guards, and you know, we got to we the. The one time we went, we went under the guise, we had permission to go film a launch. So we went and filmed the Soyuz launch, MS-11, I believe it was, MS-11 or 10. It's the one where it the 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 they had to abort the launch. You know, it was up, went up 100 and some odd miles. And the, the capsule, when they separated the second stage, there was an issue. And so they aborted the launch and the astronauts returned back to Earth. So I, I filmed that launch. And then we, you know, we had permission to be in the, in the, 
I guess you call it a town. It's about 15,000 people, Baikonur. And then uh, when our permits were up, we had to leave. So we left and went to the the next town, Teratem, and waited there and sort of started doing our reconnaissance, met people who knew people who worked in security and this and that and the other, and sort of helped us figure out the, be- the best approach and the best day and all that kind of stuff. And we packed up water and food and you had to have everything you needed. And, you know, I had 60 some odd pounds of gear in my backpack. I had my red with me. And the, the only problem with the, with the red is it's the battery. The camera itself is kind of heavy, but then you got to carry all these V-mount batteries. And I, I use the blue shape granite minis, which are great and they're tiny and somewhat lightweight, but you still have to take a lot of them, you know, because well, there's no place to charge. Yeah. Let's, so I'm 65 pounds of gear hiking through the desert at night. Let's talk about that for a second, because you've <laughs> obviously had to be in really good shape to be able to do that kind of hike with or without gear. Let's, mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of people are probably wondering about is what, you know, what is that gear package that you have honed yourself down to that you could hike in the desert at night under, you know, potential gunfire, you know, yeah. like there's, there's so many factors there that comes into deciding what to take with you. Cause yeah, it's, so- it's a once in a lifetime thing. You don't want to run out of batteries or you don't want your camera to get dust in it or sand in it. I mean, exactly. And, and I, I used to say, well, my, my second trip to Chernobyl, had built a had a custom LED light built that uses Ryobi battery packs. It's eighteen thousand lumen because everything is dark. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point in time, like I think the brightest LED flashlight you get was maybe three four hundred lumens. This thing was eighteen thousand, and I had the charge. And like most chargers, they have regulating transformers in there that usually do one twenty to two forty volts. So I'm like, no problem at all. And I get to my hotel room. This is my second journey uh, into Chernobyl, and. I go to plug it in and I look on the bottom just to double check. It doesn't, it's only 120 volt. I'm like, crap. <laughs> well, the guy who built the lights for me lives in Amsterdam. So I'm like, well, Ryobi, they're in Europe, obviously. Not realizing this is Eastern Europe. And so I, I got a cab and went to the equivalent of like a, it's a cross between a Walmart and a Home Depot. Because Ryobi is a, it's like a Home Depot Lowe's consumer um, power tool brand. Correct. So I thought, okay, they're going to have them there, you know, and get, you know, I'll get the, the, the European charger and I, you know, get to the store. And of course, no one speaks English and I speak very little Russian slash Ukrainian at the time. And so I'm using Google Translate and, you know, trying, and they, and they didn't have it. They had all the local Russian brands. And, and then I tried to explain this. I need a transformer, you know, 120 volt to two, you know, I figure I could plug that in and mm-hmm. no dice. And so I went back sort of dejected. I'm like, well, I've got two batteries that are charged. I'll just have to, you know, manage this. And that's when it starts to sink in. You know, you really have to be prepared when you do these trips because especially the, the Eastern Europe, it's not like Western Europe and Western Europe's not like the United States. They don't have everything we have here and access to it. So, and I came you know, as a Boy Scout growing up, so always prepared. And, you know, you can't necessarily carry two of everything because mm-hmm. hiking across the desert. So I've sort of honed That'd be this. 120 pounds, my math, my math serves me. Yes sort of hone this kit it's my my you know there is no perfect camera bag but i must say that my favorite camera bag that i've been using for the last five years six years now is an f-stop gear and i have both the shin and the sukha i think that's how you're sukhoi s-u-k-h-a s-u-h-k-a i think sukha they're basically the same bag height and depth but the shin is about two and a half inches wider. So what that enables me to do is so the, the thing about these bags, so they're mountaineering backpacks and they use what they call these internal camera units, which are basically separate sort of cubes that you can slide into the bag and they make them in all different sizes. And so what I've been able to do is fit out different 
packs cubes with different configurations depending on where I'm going. So mm -hmm. that I don't, you know, most people will just rearrange their bags with all the, you know, the Velcro stuff, but I have mine built out with, with Trek pack as well. Is this mountaineering gear or is this actually come from a camera? It's a camera, a camera company. company. Yep. Okay. So they made a mountaineering bag that fits these, what they call internal camera units, but it's, it's for photography. That's okay. Gotcha. But I'm sure they, they probably uh, designed this, you know, with the help from mountaineer, mountaineering oh, yeah. people. Oh, definitely. I mean, if you, if you look at it, it looks like a mountaineering bag. It doesn't look like a camera bag, which is again, incognito no one knows i'm a photographer other than that usually have the tripod stuck to the back of it but so i use the and with the shin bag what's interesting is the internal camera unit that i use is the large and they make an extra large and then they make some behemoth and the large fits in there and there's still plenty of room at the top of the bag so usually i'll stick a uh, tripod head goes inside there and i use the manfrotto n8 that their nitrogen head which i love although it's heavy it's a great head my dji mavic now it's Mavic 2 fits in there and batteries. And then inside the internal camera unit, I've got it outfitted that it fits my, and I can send you photos if you want to post it with, along with this because I've taken Oh, yeah. It. That'd be great. Um, fits my red, fits two lenses because typically I'm, I'm in a dark, big space. So I'm shooting a 16 to 35 Canon EF mm -hmm. Mark III, which is my favorite lens because it's wide and as fast as you can get it. And then I have my 24 to 70. And then four granite mini batteries that are 150 watt hour and my canon 5d or gh4 depending on what i want to put in that pack for stills if i really want to do some regular stills or just have something backup for stills and the whole idea is eventually trying to get away from carrying a stills camera at all because i've figured out how to use the red just for stills as well mm -hmm. and and i've really sort of honed that process down so that's it so that's the camera so where, where oh yeah well, so where are all the batteries going so yeah. they go inside the that internal camera unit is all sort of kitted out so that it holds the two lens, the cameras, and then the batteries and cards and you know you know all the minutia that goes along with the tools. You know, a little red tool that has all the yeah. own wrenches. And then what's nice is in the the second trip I used the shin bag, which I said is is wider, so I can actually rotate that bag, which gives me more room at the top, which is where I added my MREs, my sleeping bag, sleeping pad. Um, nearly froze to death on the second trip. It was end of October, and I just didn't wasn't prepared with warm enough sleeping gear. I took a forty degree bag, not realizing it was going to get or didn't think through and realize it was going to get that cold. But I did I took an emergency space blanket with me, which really saved me, kept me warm. But then I sweated and got wet because it doesn't breathe. Oh, yeah. But you know, MREs, water. That's the, the biggest thing is water. You can't recharge anything, so you have to have all the batteries you need. I have a headlamp. I have a. I now have a thirty-five thousand. 32,000 lumen um, flashlight from Ace Beam to really light things up when I need it. You know, and that's been my kit. I've carried that, you know, I did it this past August to Chernobyl. Two months later, carried the exact same kit to Uzbekistan. And there it was, you know, 22 miles across the desert, what was the aerial sea to get to the location. So that, uh, so that you've got that bag, and, and I'm glad you mentioned like where you're which in your sleeping bag, you're not carrying a tent. You're just sleeping open in a bag. I'm guessing yep. you've got yep. MREs, you know, you don't really have to have several changes of clothing. Maybe you have another pair of socks, possibly yep. uh, another you know, shirt yep. underneath for something like that. Yep. But all that is on your, on your back. Are you carrying any, any bags in your hands over your shoulder and keep it, or your hands kept open at hands, all times? Hands are kept open at all times. Tripod goes on the outside. Now I've modified my bag and added some more Molly 
loops on the outside so that I can actually strap on some Molly bag, you know, Molly, it's just the modular load bearing equipment, it's the military standard. Mm-hmm. So I buy some of those bags. So that helps add some water to the outside, sleeping bag strapped to the bottom. I think the tripod was centered on the back. You know, you try to balance the weight, try and keep it, you know, somewhat middle of the road. You don't want things too high or too low. And then the hands are free. Typically on the on the night trek, the only thing in my hand was my was my infrared scope mm-hmm. so that I could actually look for things. Typically no cameras because it's pitch black. And, you know, you're, we're trying to do this 26 miles as fast as we can. Yeah. As soon as the sun sets, we make the march. And I think we ra- arrived at like three in the morning to the uh, to the location and that, you know that's that's moving pretty fast oh yeah yeah <laughs> i just remember that you know there's a spot where you sort of have to bend down and stand up as you're going over things and i was 150 200 meters maybe from the building i could see it and my thighs started to cramp on me like oh, never before i'm like i'm not gonna make it. <laughs> you're not getting any younger my friend <laughs> I, know. I know and I, you know and that that second trip we did that and then we finished, we got back, you know, and it's, it's, it's a pretty long journey just to get to Baikonur. It's, you know, you go into Astana, you know, which is about a 14 hour flight. You know, I went to, to Germany and then five hours, nine hours to Germany, five hours to Astana, I think it was. And then an hour and a half flight to, I wasn't Teratem, I'll think of the town in a second, which has like a flight every other day from Astana, you know, and then we, and then it's a three hour bus ride from there to, to the Baikonur uh, area. All with this gear. Uh, all with this gear. And then I have one other duffel bag, North Face duffel bag that has clothes and stuff for the actual trip. So it's, it's two bags, you know, one goes on the plane underneath and then the other one is, goes on the plane. The backpack is designed to go on the plane because it has all the camera gear. It does cinch down so it just fits within the, the overhead compartment standards. Mm-hmm. And I fly so much that, you know, the diamond status on Delta. So I get away with maybe a little bit more sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I had some pushback getting on Aeroflot flight. They're like, oh, the bag's too big. It's got to go underneath. And of course, I have batteries in it. I'm like, can't. It's got batteries. Worst case scenario, I can pull the camera ICU out, which does fit. And then the the uh, drones and everything else, the other stuff that's sort of on the top of the bag, I can zip the bag, lock it, and throw it underneath the, the cabin if I needed to. So far, you get knock on wood, and yeah. seven years of traveling like this, I haven't had to, to, to park that underneath. But on that same trip, so we did, you know, Baikonur for five, seven days in the hole, you know, out to the shuttle, and then we made our way back up to Astana, and then three hours after getting back to Astana, we caught a train, and it was a, I think it was a 20-hour train ride, 17, 20-hour train ride, uh, all the way to Semipalatinsk, which is on the easternmost side of Kazakhstan, like 200 miles from the Chinese border, to film in Semipalatinsk, which is where the Soviets did their, it's like it's like our Los Alamos. It's where, you know, hmm. Nevada testing grounds. Cool. It's where they did all their, their nuclear bomb tests. 485 nuclear bombs were detonated there. Yeah, and they just released some footage the other day of yep. a, of a, of a never-before-seen, insanely large nuclear explosion, yep. which I saw. Yep, yep. and that, that was actually done. That And that was the only one of the only few that wasn't done in that range because of how big it was. Wow. Yeah. So when you're you're doing like especially some of these overnight things, are you do you also have like you know a, a camp shovel and your toilet paper and a really big knife that you have to sometimes get through in and around security type of people or so I I have a, a small Gerber like three inch blade that goes in my check bag. 
I do have, I usually just get the, you know, disposable toilet wipe things that Kleenex makes or, you know, now there's several companies that make them. I got these, they're compressed cellulose rags. So they're about the size, I think of about a quarter, maybe a little bit smaller than that in diameter. And they're about a half inch thick. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you add a little bit of water to them and they blow up. Oh, nice. There's some it, amazing high-end camping stuff like, yep. like, like that if you really dig into it. And we are going to break this podcast here and pick it back up in a part two where we talk with Philip Grossman. In that part, we'll talk about the trip to Anthrax Island, how he uses his laptop and what he takes with him as far as laptops and hard drives go. And we'll talk about the Red Camera and his new Red Komodo and his workflow using red cameras in general. So join us for part two.